Hello, friends. My name is Hannah, and you are listening to She Reads, They Eat, a podcast for all of my fellow literature lovers or for anyone wondering what they should read next. I cover all kinds of reads from children's book to classic literature to science fiction and fantasy. I read, you listen, and my Patreon community sends 90% of their proceeds to the hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, and needy. The other 10% is used to bring you even better content. Most of my podcast is free to listen to, but for as little as $1 a month, you can join my Patreon community for exclusive content. Thanks so much for listening today, and let's dive right into today's reads. Hello, welcome back to another episode of She Reads, They Eats. This is one of my regular Sunday episodes that you could be finding on multiple different platforms. If you're not familiar with my Patreon page, I also do a lot of extra podcasts and bookish type content there as well. But a couple notes real quick as we start out this podcast. One is that I have my windows open today, so you may hear some background noise from uh, vehicles and such. Another is that I'm using a new lapel mic, so hopefully that's picking me up fairly well, but I can't make promises on the quality of sound as this is my first time using a lapel mic. So yes, let's dive in, however, to the kind of bookish topic for today. For quite a while on this podcast, I was doing a monthly a podcast on scripture or thoughts out of scripture or things related to scripture. Um, I did one where I read scripture intermixed with um, the book Sensing God by Joel Clarkson. I did that probably five weeks ago or so. Um, I've done a podcast on what the scripture kind of talks about in regards to poverty, oppression of the poor, caring for the poor, um, all of that. Um, yeah, so I've done a few and today I just wanted to share with you some food for thought. Some of this is new to me, very recently new to me. And some of this, um, kind of happened throughout the last year. Um, some of these things have been brought to mind, but I'll be pulling most of my Thoughts out of a book I'm currently reading titled Living the Questions, The Wisdom of Progressive Christianity by David M. Felton and Jeff Proctor Murphy. So let me read you the little synopsis of this. Let's see. Why the church is in the questions business. Bringing together the voices of top Bible scholars and church leaders, including Marcus Borg, Diana Butler Bass, John Dominic Crisson, Helen Prejean and John Shelby Sponge, pastors David Felton and Jeff Proctor Murphy present a lively and stimulating tour of what it means to be a, quote, progressive, unquote, Christian. Based on the best-selling DVD course of the same name, Living the Questions explores matters many churches are afraid to address, including the humanity of Jesus and homosexuality, and examines in a new light traditional faith topics such as the Bible, atonement, salvation, the rapture, and more. So it really just dives into a lot of those questions that many of us who grew up, especially in the 
uh, more fundamentalist uh, split of the Protestant Church, otherwise known now as Evangelical Christian Church, um, we came across a lot of these questions sometimes, or we didn't until we were more grown and more exposed to other beliefs and thoughts inside of uh, what we might call Christianity. And oftentimes our questions were either um, not allowed, told to be quiet, people would question our faith if we asked these questions, or people just had such matter-of-fact, completely set answers that didn't actually seem to match up with what the Bible or Jesus' life, etc., um, said. So that it just didn't, their answer didn't seem to match up with the sources they claimed to be pulling their answer from. So um, that's kind of where I'm coming from today. So actually, I'm going to start real quick with a fun one um, from actually a different book titled Heartfelt Discipline by Clay Clarkson. And so, hold on just a minute. I hear little ones coming. Okay, so let's talk about a very interesting verse. Sorry, I got interrupted there. But let's talk about a very interesting verse that I wanted to start with when it comes to Heartfelt Discipline by Clay Clarkson. And I just want to talk about how sometimes the way that scripture is explained um, or just used in general, like that was its original use, really doesn't match up. For instance, let's talk about Proverbs 22, verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and he shall not depart from it. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Then, as Clay Clarkson says here, there's perhaps no verse of scripture quoted more frequently by Christian parents parents than Solomon's pithy little statement. Proverbs 22, 6. It is a succinct statement of a parent's mission, an Old Testament principle gilded with the promise that godly discipline will prevail even if it takes a while. Chances are you know this verse by heart, or you have it on a plaque hanging on your child's bedroom wall, or you have it underlined in your Bible. Then he goes on to say quite a few pages later when he kind of takes this verse apart. The thing I found most interesting is what the word child meant. Let's see. The word that is translated child is the Hebrew word nar. This term is used in the Old Testament to refer to a wide range of ages from an infant to an adult. However, scripture most commonly uses nar to mean young man or youth, often determined by the immediate text or constant context, but usually indicating adolescent years up to marriageable age. Jewish rabbinical tradition considered a nar to be between the ages of 16 and 24. This definition is supported by several Old Testament examples. Joseph was a nar at age 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joshua was a nar probably in his late teens at Sinai and when he spied out the promised land. David, the young shepherd able to slay a lion, but not yet able to wear Saul's armor, was a nar when he killed Goliath. Solomon was a nar in his late teens prior to taking the throne at around age 21. Absalom was a nar when he killed his brother Amnon. Josiah was a nar at age 16 when he began to seek God. So note, the word nar wasn't used when he became king at 7 or 8. 
And the Nar mentioned in Psalms 119 verses 9 is surely a young adult wrestling with sexual purity. When it says, how can a young man, which is the word Nar in there, keep his way pure? If the Nar of Proverbs 22.6 was not a young child, but a young man, then the rod passages of Proverbs need a fresh look because the same words are in view. Now, it's interesting because he goes on to talk about the rod um, and what the rod actually was. It was essentially a really big, really thick stick. So if we're going to take the rod passage, so literally, um, and let me clarify what that passage is that I'm talking about, because maybe you guys didn't grow up with it the way I did, but Proverbs 13, 24 he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. So, um, I grew up with this of verse and similar ones to it, and then I found when I first started having kids that I had peers in the Christian community, parents who felt the same way, and they literally thought that they were sinning if they did not discipline their child by spanking them. However, if we're going to take it so literally to say that we don't love our child unless we spank them, then why do we get to take that literally, but we don't take literally that it says rod, and the rod it's talking about is, again, is like a really big, really thick stick. Now, let's look at this in the light of um, the word child here. It does not mean my two-year-old won't stop touching the cookie jar. It means a young adult. So the concept was, and I have to remember this was written in a time when certain offenses um, were punishable by stoning to death. So let's say your son, at the, we're talking a 16-year-old. Your 16-year-old son is heading down the road where if he keeps going in that direction, he is going to end up committing a crime that would have him sentenced to death by stoning. And you've tried multiple different forms of discipline, but nothing has worked. And so eventually, you got to take a huge stick to your kid. Now, of course, we wouldn't do that in today's world. But you see the different light that this is cast in when you look at when it was written and what the words actually mean. Do they mean any child, like my two-year-old, or do they mean a young man? Because it's a completely different scenario to hit your two-year-old with a huge rod every time they say no or touch something they're not supposed to or run away giggling when you say come here. That's a completely different scenario than you have a son who's about to be end up being stoned to death and so you hit him with a big rod because that's better than him being stoned to death and you're more of a loving parent to do that. Again, I'm not condoning that really any experience, but that's what these kind of passages are talking about. And that's what Clay Clarkson shares in his book. So hopefully that was a decent opening example of what I want to talk about with more of these, more of these passages that in scripture we've taken to mean a very specific thing for one would think a very long time, but the fact of the matter is a lot of our superly 
strong held beliefs are only a couple of generations old or around 100 years old for some of them. Um, but let's see if I can find another interesting one for you here. Let's talk about... Um, let's talk about Romans 3.22. And this goes back to that book that I was originally sharing with you, Living the Questions, by David M. Felton and Jeff Proctor Murphy. Okay, so let's talk about the word faith. So let's start by reading Romans 3.22. Give me a second here as I flip to it. In my Bible, I don't always come 100% prepared. Sorry about that. Sundays are a very busy day for me. Um, Romans 3.22. And let me read it to you. And this is the New King James Version. Let's see. Well, we'll read 21 and 22 to kind of give you a little context. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. So he talks about, on this book here, he talks about the word faith. So he says, translators, often influenced by theological developments in the later church, are also restricted by the limits of language. The English word translated as faith is pistis in Greek. For Paul, pistis was not something to possess. Rather, it was a concept that included a whole way of living. The language of having faith would have been foreign to Paul because it wasn't about something that you had it was more about your way of living. Um, and I'm sorry if it's hard to tell when I'm interspersing thoughts or when I'm actually reading from the book. But I won't be reading things in here that I disagree with in any way. But there is no English word to translate the breadth of meaning suggested by Paul. Professor J. Paul Sampley has suggested faithing as a better translation of pistis, while others have suggested faithfulness. John B. Cobb Jr. says pistis for Paul, and in its general use in his time, included a whole way of living that's better captured in the English word faithfulness. Faithfulness includes trust and assurance, which is how we normally think of faith, but it also includes the total way of being in the world. These distinctions are more than esoteric theological shenanigans. Here's where we'll get to the verse and I'll help you understand why it's a big deal, whether we're saying um, it's just a belief in something or something that you have versus a way of living. They can have profound implications for the way we understand and practice our faith. For example, in the grammatically confusing context of Romans 3.22, pistis can be interpreted in two very different ways. Overall, Paul was interested in the faithfulness or faithing of Jesus in his obedience to death. But instead of being translated as the faith of Jesus, Romans 3.22 was translated as faith in Jesus, essentially suggesting right belief as a priority. So listen to that. Believe in Jesus Christ. Well, we now, especially in our current um way of speaking about Christianity, a belief in Jesus Christ is 
something that you have and it's about the right beliefs. But if we're saying the faith of Jesus, there is a significant difference between believing in Jesus and faithing the way Jesus did. So it's more about the way we live our lives than it is what we believe in. Such choices in translation can and have contributed to Christianity's emphasis on an aspect of discipleship Paul may never have intended. And this is something I've seen for a very, very long time, like at least 10 years. I've kind of had an issue with this complete emphasis on the belief in instead of the living life of. And one thing, I mean, a very basic understanding of this comes across in what Christians were originally called. Now we call ourselves Christians, which essentially means that we believe in Christ. That's the basic understanding of Christian. Originally, you know, Paul, the apostles, the original followers and such, they were not the original, quote, church uh, that we read Paul writing letters to and such. Um, did not call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. For them, it was not so important what they believed in is that they followed the way that Jesus lived. They followed the way that he treated people. They followed the way of his life. And when Paul talks about, and this is discussed um, in a different chapter in this book, but when Paul talked about this, uh, you know, dying, or Jesus died, Jesus didn't so much, quote, die on the cross for our sins, but when we live in the way of Jesus, we die on the cross with him and kind of remove our sins. And now, it's kind of a sneaky way of thinking about it. You might say, what's the difference? But in general, my goal with this specific podcast was just to share a couple of the ways that um, I found scripture might be saying something completely different than I originally thought it said in certain areas, or that it's not as black and white as it's laid out to be. I don't hope that listening to this, you come to all the same conclusions that I do. In general, I don't hope in the Christian faith that people come to the same conclusions that I do. My hope is that I can find like-minded people, not like-minded, I can find, well, like-minded is the right word, but I don't mean like-minded in that they think the same things I do as they think the same way I do. They want to look at the world in a similar way. They want to look at Jesus's life specifically in this more kind of open-minded and maybe everything in the Bible doesn't have these strict literal meanings. And maybe it's okay if um, I read a little something different than that. And you might say to me, well, we can't just take the Bible out of its context. And my response to you would be, um, the entire Bible is out of context because we're reading it in the year 2021. This Bible was written to the context of, well, a wide variety of times and peoples, but it was written at each, each chapter and sometimes even pieces of chapters were written to 
or each book, I'm sorry. And sometimes even pieces of books were written to different, um, to different people groups in different times. And the words meant different things. Um, and so there's no way to read the Bible and not take it out of context because the Bible itself is out of context. When Jesus was quoting pieces of scripture, he was taking them out of their original context and using them to meet the context of the times. Uh, Matthew did it when he told the story of Jesus. He took a verse from Hosea and he said, where when Hosea said it, he was not prophesying Jesus was going to come and this was going to happen to him when he talked about Jesus being taken out and moving to Egypt when Matthew made that reference back to Hosea. Hosea was literally talking about the people of his time. Um, or Hosea, I'm sorry, Hosea was actually referring back in history to the exodus from Egypt. But then Matthew took that piece of Hosea and he saw, went, this is kind of like a mirror of what's happening to Jesus right now. And he correlated the two. Just like we can read, say, you know, an old classic novel and go, wow, this is happening in our times today. And look uh, how it's almost kind of like a shadowing of what was to come. But that doesn't mean that when the person originally wrote that, they were specifically prophesying about our times. Just like Hosea wasn't specifically prophesying about Jesus. But you have to take things out of context, quote, out of context, to read them um, at all. Now, I'm not a great biblical scholar. So again, I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. I'm trying to ask uh, that you look at these things more and just kind of share in case anyone else is going, I don't know how I feel about training up a child in the way they should go or spanking them with a the rod. And do I have to take that literally? And what else might that mean? And what did the original words mean? So if you have any of those same questions about any of these passages, or you like exploring any of these topics, that's more the hope of this podcast. And so I'm going to close with, um, and I thought maybe I would go off of one specific book, but I ended up giving you one concept out of a book, another concept out of the wisdom of progressive Christianity here. And then I'm going to end with something um, that was originally pointed out to me by a podcast I listened to, uh, The Bible for Normal People. But um, he placed another verse in a completely different spot than I'd always heard it. And that is Romans 1.16. You're probably very familiar with this verse um, if you grew up in the evangelical church. And that is, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now we've always taken that, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ to mean um, I'm not going to worry about peer pressure and I'm going to go shout it from the rooftops and, you know, I'm not ashamed to call myself a Christian, even though I'm persecuted for it, which <clears throat> that's a whole nother story. Christians aren't really persecuted in this country, but I'm not going to go down that road right now. Anyways, um, we've always taken it to mean that, but, uh, 
it probably meant something quite different when Paul said it. You see, at the time, when you wanted to talk about your God, when people talked about their gods to one-up other people's gods, and my God is greater than your God, and, you know, just like we do now with our president is better than your president or your king or, you know, um, they did that with their gods, and they would try to. And so, of course, you want to make your God look like the biggest and the strongest and the toughest and the mightiest. So for your God to die such a humiliating death as the cross... It's not something that you would necessarily want to share with other people. Like, that's kind of embarrassing. Like, oh, my God's the greatest. And then he comes and he becomes a man. And then he dies on the cross. Well, that's kind of humiliating and kind of embarrassing, especially in the culture of the time. But Paul understood that a God like that was one that people could maybe relate to could maybe be interested and could maybe go, hey, I could actually meet this God and this God actually understands suffering. This God could be in suffering with me. And it creates a whole different kind of relationship with the God. Um, it's not necessarily a story. The story of the gospel is not one that says my God is the biggest and the strongest and the greatest and the most powerful. But instead it says something like my God is knows you and sees you and understands what you're going through. And so Paul was saying, some people might be embarrassed by a God who would die such a humiliating and disgusting death, but I'm not ashamed. And that's kind of a whole different meaning than I should take that verse to mean that I'm going to shout about the Jesus dying on the cross from the rooftops and make sure everyone knows that story. It's kind of a different meaning. And how that relates to your life, I think, is going to be different for every person. And if that is, because we really can't just know, but if that is what Paul meant was more of this concept of uh, who, uh, the, more of this concept of I'm not ashamed of this humiliating death that my God went through. If that's more what he meant that's going to fit into all of our lives in different ways um, and kind of change how we view things or how we act or how we treat people or what we believe in different ways. If, But um, anyways, that's just kind of a third. So I guess I kind of threw three big thoughts at you and I would love to hear your thoughts on those Um and even disagreements are just fine. I'm not necessarily interested in no. And well, this is exactly what this person meant in this scenario. And I know that for certain. Because the fact of the matter is you can't know that for certain. You weren't there. You didn't talk to that person. You didn't like, you couldn't even know that if it was somebody in our times. Who's your best friend. You still might not know. So I wouldn't be interested in that kind of conversation because... Nobody can know those things for certain. But thoughts on it, counter thoughts. I think this is more what Paul meant or what train up a child in the way he should go means. Or this is more what Jesus was trying to do. Absolutely love those kinds of conversations. Love to bounce thoughts off of each other. Or if you have any questions in any of those areas, 
I might be able to give you more of um, my thoughts on them. But the beauty of this, what I wanted to share with you, is this ability to live the questions instead of having to have answers right away. And to show you that it's okay to just be comfortable with not knowing the answers. That's okay, and you're allowed to ask questions. And that was my main goal in this. It was not to prove any kind of theological point. My main hope was just to give you a space where you could ask the questions, you could live with the questions, you could be comfortable with the questions. So that is all I have for today. Sorry for any of my rambling or any poor background noise. Thank you so much for being here. And I will be back hopefully next week with more bookish content for you. Have a great day. If you love this episode and would love to hear additional episodes, have access to extra content, and are passionate about caring for the needy as I am, I encourage you to check out my Patreon page. You can find it at www.patreon.com shereads. There are different levels at which you can help. $1 a month gets you early access to all my free episodes and could help plant three potato plants to feed the hungry. $5 a month gets you two book lists a month in addition to early access, as well as some additional read aloud podcasts and could buy a coat or shoes for a homeless person. $10 a month gives you access to all of my episodes, book lists, and more while helping a poor family afford hygiene products or allowing local gardeners to plant three extra rows of plants in their garden to give people in great need. Again, you can find that at www.patreon.com slash shereads. Thanks so much for listening today, and I can't wait to talk to you again next week.